Well, it's good to be with you guys. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, we have been having so much fun uh, as a church over the last uh, little bit, uh, walking through the book of Romans together. Um, and we've taken a bit of a break from the book of Romans because uh, we're kind of in a unique season as a church. A unique opportunity uh, is before us because um, although you wouldn't know it if you only ever showed up at a 132 gathering, but we are well out of space uh, in our other gatherings. So thank you guys for being a part of the 132 because without you here, you would just be in the lobby or other people would be in the lobby during our 9 a.m. and during our 1117, uh, which are so full. And, uh, and so we're, we're in a very, very unique season as a church because we're getting ready to move out of this building that we've out, outgrown here in Oakland and move into a building that is uh, going to be a lot more space. Uh, you might actually get some knee room uh, in the chairs in the auditorium, which would be cool. That's a novel idea. Enough room for your knees. But, uh, but we're very excited because uh, as we move from this uh, location to the next location, we're not about brick and mortar. We're not about, as I like to say, in Florida, block and stucco. Um, we are, are not about a facility. Um, we're not about anything other than uh, allowing God to use us as a church um, to make the name of Jesus proclaimed uh, everywhere we go. And so our hope and our desire and our goal as we move um, from this location to the next is that we would simply have a greater platform to be able to make the name of Jesus uh, great in our town. So same mission, same goal, same heartbeat, different location, new opportunity. And kind of as we have recognized that this is a new opportunity that is before us, uh, the leadership team of the church, the pastors, uh, as we have worked uh, together to uh, ensure that, that we are moving in the direction that God has called us to go, we've been talking about this idea of like, what does it really look like for us as a church to steward the opportunity and the, and the blessing that God has given us uh, as we move into the next chapter of our story? Because our heart is that we would be the same church that God has always called us to be, committed to the same things that God has always uh, called us to be committed to, um, but that we would do it uh, in, in a new, new location with a new opportunity and perhaps uh, an opportunity to make a greater impact uh, with, with uh, people who have never even heard of our church because we're tucked away here uh, by, between the Oakland Nature Preserve and uh, the African Safari. And so, uh, so we have an opportunity uh, moving into Winter Garden uh, so that people will be driving by our church, people will be hearing about our church, and uh, when they step into the four walls of our church, our hope is that um, we would not be on display, uh, but that Jesus would be on display. That as people come and the songs that we sing, the words that are on the screen, and as we worship God together, as people come and look in on what the people of God look like, what Christians look like, that they would see people who are passionately uh, worshiping and, 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 and declaring who God is with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. And as we open up God's word together, that we would be in awe of the incredible work that he has done uh, for us in what Jesus has done in the gospel. And so that's our hope. That's our heart. And over the last uh, few weeks, we've been thinking about this idea of stewardship, and we've talked about it last week, if you were here, we talked about stewardship in terms of our finances. And, and, and when we defined stewardship, we talked about uh, this idea of managing God's blessings, God's ways for God's glory. 
And, you know, of course, a, a very obvious, easy place for us to look and, and say, okay, yes, certainly we have been blessed by God is in those material areas, those areas of our resources and our finances. Uh, we are a very, very blessed people. And asking the question, okay, what does it look like for us to manage God's blessings, uh, God's way for God's glory, though it goes way beyond just our finances, right? That is a, a very immediate initial area that we can look at and say, yes, okay, that's an area of stewardship, an opportunity to, to manage God's blessings, God's way for God's glory. But over the next few weeks, we're going to look at other areas of stewardship, other ways that we have an opportunity as God's people to manage God's blessings uh, for God's ways, for God's glory together. And that's really the hope and the heart is that we, as we move into this next season of our lives, that we would be faithful managers, uh, faithful stewards as God's word invites us to be of all of God's blessings. You know, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been walking through the book of Romans together and as we walked through the book of Romans, we've been from chapter 1 through chapter 11, and we have just heard just some amazing and beautiful truth come out of the book of Romans that the Apostle Paul has been unpacking us uh, uh, for us about the gospel. And I love where the book of Romans begins because Paul, as he is writing this letter to the church in Rome, he is desiring to establish a relationship with the church in Rome. He is desiring to establish a connection and they didn't know each other. They didn't have any prior history. And so as Paul is beginning out his letter, he wants to, to kind of help the, the people in Rome, the, the Christians in Rome understand who he is and, and what he is all about. And toward the beginning of Paul's letter, he writes some really profound words that I think would be super important for us to look at together and to go, go back to together since we've already been through Romans 1 together as we launch into this idea of what it means to steward uh, God's blessings, God, God's ways for God's glory. So grab your Bibles. We're going to go to Romans chapter 1 together. If you have one of the Bibles that we provided on your way in, uh, you'll find Romans chapter 1 on page 1040. Uh, page 1040. If you have a, a, a phone that you're using, we're going to be in the English Standard Version today. By the way, if you don't have a good Bible at home, we're big fans of the Bible. Uh, we'd love for you to just take one of ours, write your name in it, and, and read it. We're big fans of the author. Um, God. Okay, so uh, Romans, Romans chapter 1. Um, as we step into this together, just a reminder that this is a moment where the Apostle Paul is, is trying to help the people in Rome understand what matters to him. That he's establishing a connection with them, establishing a relationship with him, and he's going to tell them, hey, this is what matters. A big, big deal. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, on page 1040 of the Mosaic Bibles, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel. The, the word gospel just means good news. It's the good news about who Jesus is, about what he has done. That, that Jesus came to planet earth 2,000 years ago. That Jesus entered into the human story. That the God of the universe took on human flesh and chose to come live among us. That humanity had rebelled against God and brought sin and death into the world. That's why, you know, if you ever wonder what, what's wrong with the world, we are. <laughs> we are. We are what's wrong with the world. We brought sin and death into the world. 
by rebelling against God, by disobeying God. And God could have totally left us in our rebellion. He could have totally left us in our sin. He could have left us with the consequences of our rebellion and sin, eternal separation from him. God would have been totally fine to do that. We we would have not been able to look at him and say that he's unjust. They would have been perfectly just for him to just simply leave us in our sin, leave us in our rebellion. But God didn't let the story in there. Jesus put on human flesh. The second member of the Trinity became a human being and he dwelled among us. He came for us and he lived the perfect life that you and I did not live. We should have, but we didn't and we haven't. And Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He was perfectly obedient to the father. He perfectly obeyed what the scripture taught and and he was without sin. And at the end of Jesus' life, though he had done no wrong, though he deserved no punishment, Jesus took on the punishment that you and I deserved. He willingly took on our guilt, took on our shame, took on our punishment, dying at the hands of sinful people. Jesus came for us. He didn't want us to be left in our sin. He didn't want us to be left in our rebellion. He wanted us to be brought back into right relationship with God. And so God took care of the problem of sin. He dealt with the problem of sin in the perfect person of Jesus on the cross. God poured out all the wrath that sin deserves upon Jesus so that you and I could be forgiven from our sin. And so that we would not have to endure the wrath that we rightly deserve because of the way that we have sinned against a righteous and holy God, our creator, the creator of the universe. So Jesus entered into our story. He took on the wrath of God. He was crucified on a Roman cross. And in that moment, he absorbed not just the wrath of the government of Rome being executed, but he absorbed the wrath of a righteous and holy God taking out vengeance upon sin because sin hurts people. It hurts us. It damages lives. It damages the world around us and it needs to be dealt with. And in order that you and I would not have to absorb God's wrath for the sin that we've committed, Jesus said, I'll take their place. Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. And that's the essence of our faith, that Jesus didn't stay dead. There have been lots of savior figures out there that have said, you know, I'm going to come and I'm going to be this good person for humanity. And they end up going the way that we all go. They die, but they stay dead. And that's what's so different about Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and on the third day resurrected from the dead. And he defeated sin and he defeated death by resurrecting from the dead. And he offers you and me, everyone here, he offers us eternal life with him that we would live forever with him, no longer uh, guilty of our sin, no longer full of guilt and shame, but innocent and righteous because of what Jesus has done. God offers us salvation and here's how you get it. You ready? You work really hard. 
you do all the right things, you never do another wrong thing, and you make sure that your life perfectly follows everything that God has said. Oh wait, that's not it. That's actually not it. (laughs) Here's how you step into relationship with Jesus. Here's how you walk into eternal life. You simply trust that what Jesus has done is enough. You believe in him. John 3, 16, maybe one of the most famous verses. says that God loved the world so much that he gave Jesus. To go through everything that we just talked about, he gave Jesus. And that whoever believes in him would not perish eternally, but instead have eternal life. That's good news. That's the gospel. All right, we're through about four words. I am not ashamed of the gospel. There it is. The good news of what Jesus has done for you and for me, that he did all the hard work and that our job is to simply believe and participate. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is through believing the gospel that people become right with God. It is through faith in the gospel that people experience the salvation that they desperately need from the eternal faith that they would have had apart from God. And it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And the way that we step into salvation is by faith because the righteous shall live by faith. Paul begins this letter by saying, listen, I want you to know what matters most. If you want to know who Paul is, Paul is a person who is about the gospel. The writer of the book of Romans, he is a person about the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is what his business is going to be about. And that's what our business should be about as well. That we would be men and women who are all about the gospel. That we are not ashamed of the gospel. That we're not ashamed of the truth of who God is. We're not ashamed of the truth of who Jesus is. In a world that that we live in right now with our culture looking in on us saying, there is no God. We are all here by chance. And there is nothing that you're going to be accountable for at the end of your life. So live and let live. Get what you can and get out. We say, no, no, no. We're not ashamed of the good news of the gospel. We do believe that there is a God who has created us in his image, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But though we rebelled against him and we brought condemnation upon ourselves, Jesus came for us and we believe in him. So we're not ashamed of the gospel. And the apostle Paul throughout his ministry constantly in many different ways proclaimed that he was not ashamed of the gospel. When you look at the life of Paul, you recognize that, man, if anybody would be a person who would be ashamed, it would be him. Because before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul. Before Paul knew Jesus, Paul was persecuting the people of God. Paul was persecuting the church. Paul was a part of the first ever martyr 
Paul was imprisoning, Saul rather, was imprisoning these men and women for following after Jesus, thinking that he was doing something good for God. And then Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and said, hey, uh, Saul, why are you persecuting me? From that point on, Saul went from someone who was to be ashamed, someone who was a persecutor of the church, someone who was working against God instead of for God, someone who should have been ashamed, to someone who God set apart to be the apostle, the sent one to the Gentiles. God set Saul apart and said, I'm going to turn you into Paul and you are going to be the person who carries the good news of who Jesus is all over the known world. And toward the end of Paul's life, as you look into his writings at the end of his life, you realize that Paul never moved off of that mission. That the gospel was always what he was all about. That no no matter where God sent him, the gospel was going to be on his lips. No matter what Jesus called him to do, the gospel was going to be his motivation, even if it got really hard, and it did. And at the end of Paul's life, you see him getting ready to step into the next life and meet Jesus face to face. And you see what matters most to him at the end of his life. Let's turn over just a little bit further to 2 Timothy chapter 1 on page 1097 of the Mosaic Bibles. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We know that this was written at the end of Paul's life. Before Paul gives his life at the hands of Rome as a martyr, Paul is getting ready to be executed and he is writing a letter to his dear friend, his close friend, Timothy, this young man who Paul has poured his life into. Paul has poured his faith into. Paul has trained up in the gospel. He's trained him up in ministry. And Paul has spent time with Timothy and Paul loves Timothy as a son. And Paul is speaking to Timothy, writing to Timothy, saying what matters most toward the very end of his life. In verse 12, the second part of uh, 2 Timothy 1, 12, he says, but I am not ashamed. <laughs> Here he is again at the end of his life, the end of his ministry, getting ready to give his life up for the gospel. And what does he say? I am not ashamed. He still stands in a place of confidence knowing that the gospel is what matters most. And here's why. I love this. But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. Wow. The reason Paul was not ashamed is because he knows Jesus. We live in a culture today where we know a lot of information, right? Like This is the information age. We have more information at our fingertips than any generation ever has. If you don't know something, just ask Siri. And she'll give you seven less than helpful websites. Checking my sources, right? Like we have access to so much information because of the internet, because of the information age that we live in today. We know a lot of stuff. And, and with that comes a lot of opinions, doesn't it? So we have a lot of information and we have a lot of opinions and that's the world that we live in. And I love that the Apostle Paul said, you know why I'm not ashamed? Not because I've got lots of information, not because I have lots of opinions, but because I know not what I believe, I know whom I believe in. 
What a difference. Paul is not defending information. Paul is not defending necessarily a historical event. Paul is not defending some data. Paul is saying that the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, is about someone who's really alive. Someone who is not dead. Someone who has been victorious over the grave. Who has been victorious over death. And I know him. It's that moment that Will Ferrell has in the movie Elf when he finds out Santa's coming. I know him. Paul says, I'm not ashamed because I know him. And he says, I know him in whom I believed. And I am convinced that he, Jesus, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I know Jesus And I know that he is able to guard until the final day, the gospel, the good news about who he is. And yet the gospel has been entrusted to me. See, this is where like the rubber meets the road at the end of Paul's life, where he recognizes that there is a sovereign God in heaven who is able to take care of business for himself. And yet he has invited us to play a part in the story. If you've been a part of Mosaic for a while, you've heard us talk about it like this, that we are recipients of the good news of who Jesus is, and we are also participants. That we are a part of the story that God is writing, that God is unfolding, and that he is preserving. And yet we have an opportunity and an invitation and even a responsibility to be a part of of what God is doing because he has entrusted the gospel to us. So what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is, listen, I have been entrusted with the gospel by God who is guarding the gospel, but guess what? He's trusting you with the gospel as well and I'm passing the baton to you. And the design of God has always been that he would be the one guarding and keeping the gospel, but that he would entrust the gospel to every generation of Christians. And that you and I would be people who have an opportunity to step into managing God's blessings, God's way for God's glory. That we get to be stewards, that we have an opportunity to step into the stewardship of the gospel. That is an amazing privilege. It's an amazing thing to think about especially at this part in our story as a church that we're about to move into something new. Wow, well, what does it look like for us to steward the good news of who Jesus is? Now, if you track throughout human history for the last 2000 years, really church history, we recognize that some generations of Christians have been extremely faithful to steward the gospel in their generation that the gospel was entrusted to them. And although Jesus is, of course, guarding it, that they have done very well in stewarding it. And yet there are other generations that we can look back on for the last 2,000 years and say, man, that was a dark time. That was a really difficult time. And humanity, the church, the human beings that make up the church didn't do such a great job of stewarding the gospel. How many of you guys um, know what October 31st is? (laughs) It's Halloween, right? Yes. And it's also another holiday called Reformation Day. I'll get to Reformation Day in a minute, but I have a little soapbox. So Halloween, 
Um, I grew up in a church, and they said Halloween is bad. It's evil. It's the devil's holiday, and so we don't we don't celebrate that. We'll huddle up in our little church and have a fall festival and call it holy. And uh, all the poor kids on your street won't get any candy because you're going to turn the lights off and act like you're not home. May I suggest to you, Christians, that that Christians should be giving out the best candy on Halloween. And here's why. Christians, what other holiday are a bunch of your neighbors going to be knocking on your door other than Halloween? So for the love of God and for the name of Jesus, give out the best candy, please. All right, somebody can fight me after if you want, but uh, that's, that's my opinion. Now, Besides Halloween, October 31st is also known as Reformation Day. Reformation Day. In fact, the first Reformation Day was not any random October 31st, but it was October 31st in the year 1517. We're 500 years past that. This is the 500 year anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. This is the 500th Reformation Day. And for those of you who are not very familiar with what was going on during that time, let's walk into that together for a minute. At this time, if you were a part of a church, it would have been very, very common for you to believe that the highest authority in the church was not the scripture, but that the highest authority was church leadership. And that what was taught about God, what was taught about the gospel, what was taught about Christian life came primarily from that person. As that person weighed in, maybe interpreted the scripture or weighed in on current events in life, his authority was the highest authority in the church of that day. If you were a part of a church 500 years ago, it would have been very likely that the scripture would have been read to you in a language you didn't even speak. Instead of reading, reading Romans 1 and 2 Timothy 2 together in a language we understand, instead it would have been read in a, a language that, that very few people, only very educated people would have understood. It was read in Latin at that time. And most people would speak their native tongue, whether it be French or German, and they didn't really understand Latin. And so the, the, the scripture was being read, but to people who couldn't understand it. And as a result, people didn't really know what was contained in the scripture. People didn't really know what exactly the gospel was. They didn't know how good the good news was. And so they were under the impression that God didn't, didn't relate to us the way that I had just described when I talked about what the gospel is, but instead that we have to work to earn our way to God. That we have to do all the right things, that we have to attend the right services, that we have to do all the right rituals, that we have to make sure that we have all of our ducks in a row and our connection to the church, that, that that's how God related to people. And it would have been very common for, for people to believe things like, uh, you know, hey, if I sin, if I commit a sin or I do something wrong or I do something very bad, if, if I do that, then one of the ways that I can make it right with God again is if I just pay enough money to the church. It's called indulgences. Really, really ungodly stuff, not found in the scripture, but that the church was practicing 500 years ago because for centuries, for generations, the church had been a place where people could gain political power because the church was so connected to the government. 
And 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, some little monk named Martin Luther said no more. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. He was searching the scriptures. He was reading the book of Ephesians, reading the book of Romans. And he's saying, well, wait a second. All this stuff we're practicing in the church is wrong. It's not what the scripture teaches at all. And we got to put a stop to this. We need to be guarding the gospel. We need to guard the gospel that's been entrusted to us. And so we got to put a stop to this. So Martin Luther went to his, his church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed, nailed 95 theses to the church door and said, this has got to stop. I remember a funny thing a few years ago, my friends and I went and did a kind of a Reformation tour throughout Europe. It was like so much fun. We backpacked, stayed in hostels. It was shady. And uh, if you've ever stayed in a hostel, you know what I'm talking about. It's not sanitary. But uh, we went throughout Europe and, and we got to see all of these amazing places in, in Europe. And we got to go to this, this church in, in Wittenberg, Germany, and we got to go see where it was that, that Martin Luther uh, nailed the 95 Theses to the door. And, and the saddest thing was, because they were getting ready for some festivals that were coming through, uh, they actually had the door uh, uh, under like construction. They were like refurbishing the door while we were there. It's like showing up to Disney and there's no castle, you know? They're like, come on. But, but this moment in history shaped Europe shaped the world, shaped Christianity so much so that you and I are now the beneficiaries of what happened. The ripple effects that went out from the Protestant Reformation changed the landscape of what it meant to be a part of, of, of Christian community. It, it changed the landscape in so many different ways. And one of the ways that it did is that the, that the reformers, these people, these, these men and women, turned to the scriptures and said, well, we've got to figure out what exactly this is really all about. We've got to look at this and see what God is actually teaching us through the scriptures about who he is and what he's done for humanity. And so the reformers got together and, and they began to clarify the gospel. And now if you're here and you're like uh, from a Protestant background, maybe some of this is familiar to you and you've heard a little bit about it and usually in a basically positive light. If you're here and you have a Catholic background, you may have heard about this in a less than positive light because during the Roman Catholic Church in that time, uh, Martin Luther was not well received, right? When you stand up and say, hey, we're not doing this right, we need to change, sometimes people don't take to, very kindly to that. So they actually excommunicated Martin Luther from the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And as a result, we have now the Protestant Reformation. They were protesting against what was going on in the church but Martin Luther's, his desire was always to reform the church from within. But because God is gracious and good and he deals with us even in the midst of all of our mess and shenanigans as human beings. Yes, there was a Protestant Reformation, but there were also counter-reformations within the Roman Catholic Church as a result of what was going on. And so the Roman Catholic Church is a much healthier place today than it was 500 years ago because God raised this man up because God used this man because remember who is guarding the gospel after all? Jesus, he is. God is guarding the gospel after all. But because they looked into the gospel, because they looked into the scriptures and said, what is the gospel saying? What is the scripture teaching about life and about who God is? They began to see these, these things, these essentials, these non-negotiables rise up to the surface. These things that we have to say, yes, we are not going to argue about this anymore. This stuff is what we believe from here on out. And we've got to agree on this together. 
they looked at that and they developed these five non-negotiables. They're called the five solas of the Reformation. Sola, like only. Uh, the five onlys of the Reformation. And these five solas were a way to kind of come around as a, as a church together, as this fledgling Protestant movement together saying, okay, what, what is the, the essential that we're going to agree upon as we move forward and as we live in community pursuing after Jesus together? What does that look like? And the first sola, the first only that they developed was sola scriptura, scripture alone. That they recognize that, man, if, if our beliefs as a Christian community are subject to the whims of a human being's opinion, we're in big trouble. We're in really big trouble. But that God has given us the scripture. He's given us his word. He's given us these writings. And the scripture says that it is useful. It's God-breathed and it is useful for correcting and teaching and training in righteousness. And that the scripture can be our ultimate authority. It can be the one, the, the one thing that we all agree upon and can settle in on and say, yes, if the scripture teaches it, we believe it and it's true. Now, the scripture won't tell you everything you need to know about life. It won't tell you what to do with your 401k, you know, or where to send your kids to college or who to marry. Like that is not what the scripture is meant to do. The scripture gives us plenty of principles that will help us learn to invest well. The scripture will give us plenty of principles that will help us guide our kids in education. The scripture will give us plenty of principles that will help us find a spouse if God calls us to marriage. And so, so scripture is the highest authority. It doesn't answer every, everything in life, right? Door number one, door number two. Let me look at John chapter five. That's not how it works. But the scripture is the highest authority for human life. It's the highest authority for Christian life. And it is where we begin to understand who God is and what the gospel is and what it means. So the first only that they said is we got to agree that the scripture has to be our final authority. And so sola scriptura is the first sola of the Reformation. The second is sola gratia, which means grace alone. At this time, there were so many people teaching that you enter into relationship with God or that you keep your relationship with God by the things that you do, but the scripture doesn't teach that. Ephesians chapter two, verse one says that we are saved by grace through faith and it's a gift. No one earns it so that we can't boast. And so Sola gratia, by grace alone, that we recognize that we are the ones that are, that are given grace by God, that we're not the ones who earned it, that did anything for it, but we are recipients of God's grace. And that God has intentionally pursued us, that God has entered into our story, that we were in sin, in rebellion, and God said, no, 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 I'm going to enter into your story, and I'm going to offer you an opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus and walk into relationship with me. That we're saved by grace through faith. The third point of the Reformation, the third sola is sola fide, faith alone. That the way that we receive God's grace and respond to God's grace, what God has done in giving us Jesus, what God has done in pursuing us, what God does when we hear the gospel preached, he extends his grace to us and then our response is faith in Jesus. 
That the power of the gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the power of the gospel comes to us by faith because the righteous live by faith. That we don't trust in anything else or anyone else, that we don't trust in our own works, that we don't trust in anything other than faith. That we recognize that there's nothing that we can do to earn it, that there's nothing that we can do to buy it, but that God is the initiator and we respond by trusting him and believe in him. And who is this him that we're believing in? Could it be just anybody that we want? No, no, no. Number four, fourth point of the, the Reformation, solus Christus, Christ alone. We live in an increasingly plural, pluralistic society that says, what's good for me is good for me. What's good for you is good for you. What's true for me is true for me. And what's true for you is true for you. And the sad reality is that that would be nice if it was reality. But what God has done for us in the gospel is that he loved the world so much, he sent his son, Jesus, someone particular, someone on purpose, not just anyone, because Jesus is the only one who could live a perfect life and absorb God's wrath for our sin on the cross. No one else has done that. No one else can do that. And no one else would do that. Only Jesus. And so people say, oh, it's very narrow to say Jesus is the only way. Except for if he is the only way. It's not narrow to say that. It's just true. And what the scripture teaches us is that he is the way for everyone. So it's actually incredibly broad that Jesus is the only way for all is the most inclusive, incredible reality that we've ever known. But we call it narrow because Jesus is the only way. You don't get to choose the way if there is only one way. So Solus Christus, the fourth point of the Reformation, reminds us that it's not just faith and grace in general, vague spirituality, but that it's faith in Jesus in a response to God's grace. Amen? And finally, the fifth point of the Reformation, when all these other four points are clicking in our lives, the result is the fifth point of the Reformation, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Later on in the Westminster Confession, they would articulate that the, the chief end of man, the purpose of man, why we exist on this planet. If you've ever wondered why do you exist? Why is humanity here? Why are we the way that we are? Why is planet earth so different than all of the planets in our solar system, than all of the planets in all of the other galaxies? Why is earth so unique? Why are we the top of the food chain? Why do we have the intellect that we have? Why are we different and set apart from the rest of the animal kingdom? Why is it that way? The Westminster Confession says that the chief purpose, the chief end of humanity, of mankind, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you ever wanna know what this life is all about, there it is. You were put on this planet to enjoy the creator. God created that you would enjoy the creator. Wow. 
And even though we chose creation over creator, Romans 1 tells us, though we sinned and rebelled against God, God said, I'm sending Jesus so that you can again glorify me and enjoy me forever. The scripture teaches us that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus so that we glorify God and enjoy him forever. And these are the five solas of the, the Reformation, where in a generation 500 years ago, people stood up and said, we need to guard the gospel. We've been entrusted with the gospel. This stuff matters. This is a big deal. And I want you to hear just the ripple effect of the Protestant Reformation. Sola number one, sola scriptura. Previous to the Protestant Reformation, people had no access to the scriptures in their language. But because of men like uh, John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, because of a man named Johann Gutenberg who developed the printing press, kind of a minor invention. I don't know if you've heard of it. Because of translation in common language and because of the ability to mass produce literature, the scriptures went out all throughout the continent of Europe and all over the known world because of the ripple effect of the Protestant Reformation and saying that the scripture matters most. Wow. Things like indulgences were done away with. No more were people duped into believing that they can buy salvation because the scripture clearly teaches that it's a free gift. The true gospel was preached. Salvation theology was clarified. And at the end of the day, God was glorified. This is what the Protestant Reformation is all about. It's not just a, a point in history that we feel like, well, it's the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. I guess we won't get this opportunity again. May as well do a message about it. <laughs> but this is an opportunity that we have that in the same spirit of the Protestant Reformation that we would guard the gospel. That this is what we're called to in our generation. That these men looked at their opportunity to guard the gospel and they seized a hold of it and they said, yes, we know that Jesus is ultimately guarding the gospel, but he's entrusted it to, to us. And so we want to step into that. We want to say yes to that. We want to embrace that opportunity because the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. If we are going to manage any of God's blessings, God's way for God's glory, let it be this. Let it be the gospel. And I'll close with this. You know, um, all of us in this life, every single one of us, we have been individually invited to be a recipient of what God has done. And we've individually been invited to be participants in what he's done. We have also collectively as a church been invited to be recipients and participants in what Jesus has done in the gospel. If enough of us individually say yes and step into our call to steward the gospel well with our own lives, in our own families, in our relationships, in our workplace, in our schools, if we as individuals take seriously the invitation to steward the gospel, and we as a collective take seriously 
the opportunity to steward the gospel well. The only logical result of that is that the God of the universe will be glorified. And in that, we will be satisfied in him. Because here's the thing. There is no more profound way to live this life than to live the way that God designed you to live. To say yes to his calling and to be a part of his story. He is the author. He is the finisher. And that we get to play a part is nothing but grace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are and your love for us and your goodness to us. We trust in you. We believe in you. We put our hope in you. We know from the scripture that salvation is by grace through faith in you. And we wanna live for your glory alone. God, help us to be men and women who pass on the good news of the gospel to the next generation like Paul did to Timothy, like the Protestant Reformation sparked forth gospel movement all over the world. God, I pray that we, that we would be a part, a part of that gospel movement into the world in our generation. God, we're grateful for you. We're thankful to be recipients and participants. We pray in Jesus' name.